Heavenly Father, we ask that indeed your spirit would so work in our midst this morning that the word of God would be clear and come home to our hearts in power and change the way we think and act. Give us hope because your promises are filled with such wonderful truth. Promises that we can embrace that talk about sins forgiven and guidance for the day and hope for tomorrow. And Lord, I pray that you will also apply your word to our hearts in areas that need to be corrected. Warn us. Rebuke us. Comfort us. Change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this is my take on it. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church in the city of Thessalonica. Remember, he visited that church. He was the founding pastor, as it were, preaching the word, people came to Christ, church was formed. But quickly he had to leave because of persecution, and he went down to the south in the land of Greece. But he was very much concerned about these young converts and whether they would be faithful whether they could endure the great persecution that they would face. And so he sent Timothy. And Timothy went up there, had a great visit, came back and said they're doing well. They're following the word. They remember our visit with joy. Their hearts are filled with love for Christ. And they're looking for the second coming of Christ. And Paul was elated. So he writes this letter we call 1 Thessalonians. It's a letter to express his gratitude and praise for them. And that's why he calls them a model church. They have a faith worth, worth following. But in every chapter, he mentions the dominant theme, which is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look with me just for a moment at chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians, and you'll notice at the end of the chapter, Paul makes this statement. We are to wait for his Son from heaven. That is, the one he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So there's the message of the second coming. In chapter 2, it's found in verse 19. What is our hope? What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? Paul says, is it not you, believers, you people who came to Christ? When, when God comes back, when Jesus returns, you will be our crown, our reason to rejoice. You, you're our reward. So he mentions the second coming of Christ and benefits that will be handed out to believers. In chapter 3, it's verse 13. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when Jesus returns with all his holy ones. So now the admonition is about a sanctified life, a godly life that we are to live in light of his soon return. In chapter 4, there's a long extended portion of Scripture beginning at verse 13 because some people were afraid that their loved ones who died before Jesus returned would be separated from him. And Paul says, no, no. When Jesus comes back, those who've, who've gone asleep in Christ are the first to be raised. They'll come back with Christ. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet Christ in the air. If you are in Christ, you will never be separated from Christ. Not in this life, nor the life to come. 
So Paul said, I want you to comfort one another with these words about the return. But then he opens chapter 5 with these words, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, is going to be like a thief in the night. It's going to surprise many people because most people live in darkness and they're not looking for his coming. But you believers, Paul says, you're not in the darkness, you're children of the light. That day is not going to surprise you. You don't know when it's going to happen, but you know it's going to happen, and you should be looking for it every day. After giving these admonitions about the second coming of Christ, he then seems to focus on the corporate body of Christ, believers doing church, and gives us some great instruction on how we need to do church. He first of all mentions relationships. Notice in verse 12, he says... In these relationships, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, in these relationships, I want you to respect those who lead you. And if you do that, there'll be peace in the assembly. He mentions in verse 13, support those who need you, the three different groups, those who aren't walking as they should, those who are timid and afraid and often intimidated, lacking courage, and those who need help because they're weak, and if you don't support them, they're going to fall to temptation. With all three of these groups, be patient. And then there are those who wrong us, and we shouldn't attack these people evil with evil. We should be kind to them. So patient to, with everyone, kind to everyone, and that's how we build up these wonderful relationships in the body of Christ. Still thinking of that, he talks about the standing orders for the church. I call these the always. Verse 16, always be joyful. Verse 17, always be prayerful. Verse 18, always be thankful. And then that last explanatory phrase really is given for all three of these. For this is God's will for you if you're in Christ. And this is how we can measure even our own spiritual progress to the extent that these are abundant and growing and healthy in our relationships in the assembly. But now he comes to five statements that almost seem disconnected, arbitrary, unrelated. Notice in verse 19, do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to what is good. Avoid every kind of evil. And I say at first blush, these appear to be disconnected. We notice that they're all present imperatives, they're commands. And the present tense gives the idea that either these are things they were doing and they need to stop doing, or these are things they need to do habitually to develop a habit and a practice of doing these things. And either way, it's appropriate. I think they probably were doing some of these things, and Paul is telling them to stop it. And in their place, he's giving them behavior that would be Christ-honoring. I think there's a connection with all of these, and the key is verse 20. Don't treat prophecies with Contempt. In other words, this section of Scripture is talking about preaching. It's talking about how you listen 
to preaching. The word prophecy can mean either the idea of foretelling, prediction. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. It hasn't happened yet, so it's prediction. Foretelling, F-O-R-E. But then there is the category of forthtelling or proclamation. I think the best way to understand it are those two words, prediction or proclamation. Proclamation is simply talking about a historic event and the consequences of it, the meaning of it. And that's what preachers do today in the 21st century. We are proclaiming, we are forthtelling God's truth. True events happened in history and we're talking about their meaning and significance for us today. We don't have prophets. We don't have apostles like they did in the first century. Primary apostles and prophets. Because these were the ones, prophets in the Old Testament, some prophets in the New, but apostles in the New, these were the ones who received the word of God directly from God. And when they proclaimed the word of God, it was God's voice. It was God's truth. And of course, when the apostles preached, they would often record things, and those are the letters and the books of our New Testament. On the same level of authority as the Old Testament that came through the mouth of prophets. Now, in a secondary sense, every preacher should be a prophet and should be an apostle, one sent with a commission, but not in the primary sense. See, when I speak, you don't write it down and add it to your Bible. That would be heresy. But if I were receiving a direct revelation from God, same authority as the apostles, then that's what you should do. But we're, we're told the canon of Scripture is complete. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is complete. And the last book of the Bible says, don't add to it. It's sufficient. And because that's true, we don't have to have new revelation that gives us new spiritual insight outside of the Word of God. We need a lot of insight, and we need the help of the Spirit to understand this book. No doubt about it. But we don't have apostles and prophets in the same New Testament sense. But remember, when this book was written, they did. In fact, 1 Thessalonians might have been the very first letter recorded in the New Testament. It's not when we look at our Bibles as they are lined up in the New Testament, but it might have been chronologically the very first, probably in the early 50s A.D., only two decades after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul is writing or Paul is speaking... This is new revelation, and they want to get it down. Look at verse 27. Paul says, I want you, I command you to read this letter in all the churches. Wow, that's an amazing command. Did you know what they used to do in their assemblies? They patterned it after the synagogue. They would have an Old Testament lesson. They would read from the Old Testament scrolls. Paul is saying, now I want you to add a New Testament lesson. Read from my letters. Same level of authority. Wow. Any preacher that tells you his sermons and his counsel is on the same level as the Old Testament, mark that person down as a false prophet. But that's what Paul is saying. So the Scripture is elevated in its authority, 
And the focus here is on when the word is preached, how do we respond? That's what's important. And that gives unity and connection to all five of these commands. So this is pretty vital. This is pretty important for us since you and I listen to sermons on a weekly basis. How do we listen? How do we respond? Well, let's look at each one of these, and they neatly fall kind of into an outline. First of all, he says, don't put out the Spirit's fire. The word fire is actually not in the original. In fact, if you were to read this in the original, the the author, Paul, puts the most important words are the words of emphasis, the major theme at the beginning of his statement. And it literally reads like this. The spirit don't quench. Prophecies don't despise. But everything examine. And so he's talking about the spirit's work in the midst of the church, and we are not to extinguish the Holy Spirit. We're not to quench or stop or smother or suppress. In fact, we ought to do the opposite, really. We ought to invite and entreat and yield to the Holy Spirit so that he would do great work. Now, I I think this is what was happening. Because the dominant theme is the second coming, you had people preaching about the second coming and saying some bizarre things. Prophecy and bizarre preaching seem to go hand in hand. And so the the word of God is going out and things are being said and people are hearing these outlandish statements and some people are saying, well, if that's the way it's going to be, I'll just stop listening to it. I don't want to hear any prophecy. And so they stop coming to church. Or when prophecy is given, they ignore it. Another interesting aspect about the early church in this day, we read in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, is that when they would gather, everyone had a psalm, everyone had a prophecy, everyone had a prayer. There was some kind of involvement from everyone, and they would stand up and speak, and so you wouldn't know who was speaking of the Lord or who wasn't. What prophecy was accurate and true, and what prophecy should be rejected? And some were rejecting it all together, and that was quenching the Holy Spirit. Now, because the Holy Spirit is called fire, remember Pentecost? The tongues of fire came on everyone. Or when Jesus was baptized, it was said that he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's nothing wrong with this idea of putting fire in the text. It's implied there. Don't put out the Holy Spirit's activity. If someone is very zealous, we are warned not to throw a wet blanket on their zeal, right? That's what we often do to the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer says we reject the Holy Spirit or resist the Holy Spirit, quench the Holy Spirit, when we undervalue his work and we decline to yield to his influence. We undervalue his work. That's not important. And when he does influence our heart, we're stubborn and we don't yield. That's how we quench the Spirit. 
Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 says, Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, the one who sealed you for the day of redemption. Don't grieve him. And I add to the list Hebrews 10, 29. There's those who trample underfoot the Son of God and treat his blood, the blood of the covenant, as an unholy thing and insult the Holy Spirit. Did you know that our worship services run the risk of grieving and quenching and insulting the Holy Spirit? How? Undervaluating his importance. Did you pray when you came in here that the Holy Spirit would open up your minds to understand what was going to be preached? Did I pray that the Holy Spirit would so grab hold of me that when I would preach, it would come from God and not from me? When we decline to do these things, we grieve and insult and extinguish the Holy Spirit's fire. Remember that old hymn? Brethren, we are met to worship and adore the Lord our God. Will you pray? And uh, holy manna will be scattered all around. Brethren, pray. And, and the statement says, uh, unless the Holy Spirit comes, all, all preaching is in vain. All is vain unless the Holy Spirit of the Holy One comes down. Or something like that. That was a paraphrase, a lousy paraphrase. But you remember the hymn? That's dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what you and I need. So you pray, God, Spirit, the Spirit, speak to me. Enlighten my mind so I can understand. Move my will so I'll surrender and yield. Change me. And I'm praying, God, fill me. Let it not be me, but you. May the voice be your voice as it comes from the Scripture and change hearts, including mine. And when we're praying like that, God the Spirit is going to have free course. He's going to have unlimited control. He'll be able to do whatever he wants to do in your heart and in my heart. And that's when we sense, when we walk out of this place, we sense God was here. Right? God was here. It's not in the unusual manifestations. It's not in the physical gyrations. It's in the deep work of the Holy Spirit that does produce joy and peace and patience and kindness, the very things that Paul has been talking about should be evident in our church. So we disrespect the Word of God when we quench the Holy Spirit's work, when we treat prophecies with contempt. Some people hear a some preaching on the second coming of Jesus Christ and they're thrilled in others, they just kind of clam up. Their spirit is redraw withdraws and they're afraid of abuse. They've seen so much of it. Some are overly enthusiastic, some are under-enthusiastic. And we've got to find that biblical balance. So what do you do when the word is preached? You don't treat the word with contempt by ignoring it. What do you do? Test everything. So we now move on to the fact that when the word of God is preached, you need to hear it and examine it. That's the next point. 
Test everything that you hear. Test everything that is said. Now, if it's good, hold on to it tenaciously. If it's evil, avoid it completely. So those become the qualifying statements of our examination. It tells us what to do when we find out what is being said. Now, I saw something this week that I don't think I've ever seen before. It's, I think, very insightful. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 for a moment. Acts chapter 17. We quote this verse quite often, taking it out of its context. I don't think abusing it, but sometimes missing the fire, the, the power, the impact that it has in its context. The verse I'm referring to is verse 11. Receive the word of God with readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily to see if what is preached is accurate. We often quote that verse. We even call people uh, who are students of the word Bereans. You might have a Berean class. Um, I think we have a Berean class. I say I think we have because I know we did, and I can't remember if it's still around, but we had a group of people who called themselves the Bereans. Almost every church I've been in had a Berean class, and they take this verse. But now listen to the verse in its context. The Apostle Paul, when he got onto European soil, first went to Philippi because of persecution, went to Thessalonica. There he was persecuted, and verse 10 says, Acts 17, 10, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away to Berea because of the persecution. Now that's a little town further west from Thessalonica. When they arrived there, they went into the synagogue. We learn early in chapter 17, this was Paul's custom. New city, go to the synagogue. Why? Paul's a Jew. He, he knows other Jews there. The church at this time is heavily Jewish, just beginning to break into Gentile soil. And so Paul goes to the group of Jews, and everyone could stand in that synagogue and share something. And so Paul would go there and preach Christ. He went there, and this is what he found, verse 11. The people in Berea were more noble, more virtuous. Why? Because they received the word with readiness of mind. More noble than, than whom? The people in Thessalonica. So there was a problem in the church in Thessalonica where some people were not eager to hear the word. They were quenching the Holy Spirit. They were despising prophecies. I think the focus here is primarily on the, the uh, Jewish groups of those two cities, but it's most likely that it affected others as well. And so now what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 5 is identical to Acts 17.11. You need to be ready when the word of God is preached and take it in, but test it. Search the scriptures to make sure what you're hearing is accurate and biblical. You see, while we are, are very appreciative of the fact that there is a renewed interest in the Holy Spirit and that there is a focus that we cannot do anything of blessing and good without his power, there are some bizarre claims being made today in the name of the Holy Spirit. And you and I have to be on our guard. So Paul is saying, don't be contemptuous when the word is preached by ignoring it and disrespecting it, nor should you be gullible by taking everything in as though it's accurate. 
There are many people preaching in the name of Christ who have not been sent of God. There are many people who are quoting Scripture who have ulterior motives. And that's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we didn't come with dishonesty or deceit. We came and preached the word of God to you with integrity and openness. There are some preachers whose only goal is to get the money out of your pockets. Do you believe that? If you don't, I'm afraid you're too gullible and you've probably already sent some of your money to places it shouldn't have gone. Now, there's some good people out there but there are some false prophets. Yesterday, we were in Hudsonville watching one of my grandsons play basketball. And if you've never seen first-grade basketball, you have not seen the sport. <laughs> it's amazing. And, and so we're watching the game, and we had a lot of laughs, and it was a lot of fun. And anyhow, after the game, uh, Benjamin, my uh, second grandson, comes up to me, and he says, Papa, do you have any money? First thing he says. Well, not the first thing. I guess it was the second thing. You see, the week, or last time we saw them, I gave all of my grandsons a quarter, which was not a good thing to do. Now they expect it. So he just says, Papa, do you have any money? So I said, I, I do have a little bit. And I pulled some change out of my pocket. I just opened my hand, and he took it. <laughs> he didn't ask for it. He just took it. And his mom was appalled. She said, at least you've got to ask for it first. And I thought of this text as I was preparing the sermon. That's exactly what some preachers do. So glad to have you here today. Do you have any money? And the moment you say yes, they just take it. Now, we know that there are resources needed to run the church. I'm not saying that that's not true, but ulterior motives in preaching the word of God to build up their kingdom, to feather their nest, and they're not concerned with honoring God, preaching his word accurately, ministering to people. So don't be gullible, Paul is saying. Test everything. Now, Bishop Lightfoot, a, a, an ancient, or a, a commentator on the ancient scriptures, says the Greek fathers felt that this statement was based on an unrecording from Jesus, an unrecorded statement of Jesus. We know Jesus said many things that aren't recorded in the scripture, right? John chapter 20 tells us that. If the books recorded everything he said and did, the world couldn't contain it. So we know Jesus said some things that aren't in the scriptures. And so what he's saying may be true, maybe it isn't, but they're saying all the way back to early church history, they believe this was a saying of Christ. And this was the saying. Jesus said, become approved bankers, money changers, that is, people who know how to distinguish true coinage from the false. So you could see Jesus in one of his parables picking up a coin and saying to his disciples, is this a real coin or not? How do you know? How do you test it? Test doctrine as well. You could just hear him saying that. And so they're saying, if that was a true statement of Christ, Paul probably has it in mind when he says, test everything, because the word he uses is a word that was used to test coins, to see if they were genuine. And what do you do if it's a genuine coin? You hold on to it tenaciously. You invest it. And if it's false, if it's counterfeit, you get rid of it. And that's exactly what Paul is telling us to do. You don't reject it outright. You don't accept it outright. You test it. When the word of God is preached, you don't accept it immediately. You don't reject it immediately. You sift through it. 
You weigh what is said. You listen. You test. So, how do we respond to this? How do we make it practical? Well, let me give you a test that you can use when things are preached so you can examine to see if it is biblical. Five things that I want to mention to you just briefly. The first is this. Is it scriptural? I don't have a slide for this, so you'll have to write them down if you want to remember it. Number one, is it scriptural? Acts 17, 11, they search the scriptures to see if what was said was accurate. Now, we have the advantage of having a complete canon. They didn't. And we can check the scripture, the analogy of the Bible, the truth of scripture, which means you have to know your Bible or you're going to be led astray. Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. What a blessing you and I have. We hold a Bible that is incapable, incapable of leading us astray. We hold the book that is the very word of God to our souls when properly understood. And so when anything is said in the name of God, examine the scriptures to make sure it's accurate. Number two, the test of the nature of Christ, the divine human nature of Christ. 1 John chapter 4 tells us this. We need to learn to test the spirits. Don't believe every spirit. Test them, John says. Test them to see if they're of God or if they're of human origin. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So right away, be on your guard. Be aware, right? If you're in a battle and you're going to the front, you, you've been behind the lines and things have been relatively calm and safe, but now you're going up to the front and one of the things they tell you is be on your guard because people are shooting at you out there. You know that people are trying to take your life. You're going to be on high alert. Be on high alert every time you hear the word of God because there are many false prophets out there. So, by this you know, verse 2, that this is from God, the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that doesn't acknowledge the dual nature, divine human nature of Christ is not of God. So he's the Son of God. The Scripture says he shares the exact nature of God he and the Father are one, but he became a man. Anyone who denies that, they're not true prophets. And we've got to reject their teaching. The third is the standard of the gospel of free grace. That is, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Galatians chapter 1. And we read in Galatians chapter 1 that... Uh, Paul said, if anyone preaches a gospel that's different than my gospel, even if an angel preaches a gospel that adds works to grace, let them be condemned. Because it's not of God. So when someone preaches a message that adds works to grace, we know it's not of God. We are saved by grace alone. And that grace is received by faith alone. And there's nothing we do to earn or merit our salvation. 
purely of grace. Anyone who moves away from that position fails the test. The fourth is the very nature of the person who is teaching. You shall know them by their, what? Fruit. Matthew chapter 7. And so some teachers out there are just scoundrels. And people know it. No one in their community would trust them. And yet they get on TV and people don't know about them and they're gullible and soon they're involved in false teaching. The danger of false teaching is that we think it's true and begin to base our life on it and we're led astray. And the last is simply the fact that we in our listening to the word of God, need to be built up in the faith. So the last test is, does it edify? You can read 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 13. Love builds up, truly builds up spiritually. Love edifies. Don't get involved in those things that will distract and divide the body. The importance is edification. We're told in 1 Corinthians that those who are spiritual judge everything. And Paul is urging the church to have a spirit of discernment and not gullibility. So, test it. Hold on to it if it's good. Reject it if it's false. Now think of this. If these commands, not only the ones we've been talking about today, but the preceding ones, deal with corporate worship, think what ought to characterize our worship. Verse 16, joy. Verse 17, prayer. Verse 18, gratitude. Let there be praise and joy and celebration when we worship. And what else? Don't quench the spirit. But listen to the word of God proclaimed and examine what is being said to make sure that it's true. And if it's true, what do you do? Hold on to it tenaciously. That means apply it to your life. Make it your own. Dedicate yourself to it. Let it become part and parcel. Warp and woof of your life. Let it enter your mind and mold your affections and change your will. Be transformed by the application of this book. And if what you hear is not biblical, reject it completely. And if you do that, Spirit of God, is going to be doing amazing things in your heart and in our assembly for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Lord, we ask this morning that your spirit indeed would have free reign, that the Holy Spirit would take the word of God, bring it home to our hearts in power like fire burning in us, so that we would say with Jeremiah, the word was a fire within us, and we can't ignore it. May we examine it, study it, understand it, embracing what is true and rejecting what is false. So that, Lord, in this place, your name would be honored, and your word would be proclaimed, and your people would be edified to the glory of God. Amen.